All right, good morning. Grab your Bibles. You can see uh, we're going to be Acts chapter 20 <clears throat> while they're doing that. Um, you guys, I get, up, uh, I get up really early on Sundays just because I don't like to be rushed, and I got, uh, it's a long story. Anyway, so I usually get ready in the dark because our, our room is attached to um, the bathroom, and Rebecca's still sleeping. And um, so my sink has kind of become like a catch-all for stuff that I haven't quite put away yet, but it's not necessarily toiletries. And um, so I had got some, uh, some waterproofing spray for my shoes, and I had set that on my, my counter, and I hadn't thought about it for a couple days. And this morning, in the dark, somehow, when I went to grab deodorant, I grabbed waterproofing spray. And I sprayed my, my underarm. This is a true story. And so either, like, I'm living in, I'm, like, way ahead, and I'll never sweat again, and that's awesome, or I might die. So it's, this is the fate is sealed. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. The funny thing about this is it actually is related to the sermon, okay? Um, so, so I have this spray deodorant, and it's like literally the same size can. Everything about it felt the same. It looked the same. The silhouette and the, some, the darkness, it felt right. And as soon as I picked it up, I was like, mm, this is heavier than I think my deodorant is. And as soon as I sprayed it, I, I audibly go, oh, no, okay? Because I knew it was a problem. And uh, so here's the thing. Everything about like the outward appearance of it is, was right, but the substance was wrong, right? And, um, and so this morning, um, I, I, we're diving into something that feels like it doesn't apply to you, but it very much applies to you. And why I say that is this, because we're talking about the, the leadership of the church, which pertains mostly to the elders and the pastors. Uh, but in, in that um, idea is the, that you are part of the same if you want to think about the same requirements or the same uh, things that you ought to be pursuing are the same things that you ought to look for your leadership to be doing and pursuing as well. And it's not about the outward appearances. Like everything could be right from the outside, but we find out over and over in scripture that just because the outside looks right or even better, and it has like some of the properties that we want, like waterproofing, um, it's, it's not deodorant, right? It's not the substance of what God wants for his, his people and for his church. And so, um, that was just a, a funny story because I had to share it with you guys. So if I like drop dead because I've absorbed some chemical that's illegal in all the states, then you'll know why because it wasn't meant to be on my body. So, um, so here's, here's the story. We've been tracking with Paul and we're in Acts chapter 20. There's been a transition from his missionary work, but he's an apostle. Apostle just means one who is sent. Okay? But there's a transition now for, from like a specific missionary work where he's been doing something new or starting new things to his, to his strengthening things. He's going through back through the churches on his way to Jerusalem, which he's resolved to do and to get to. Uh, we found out um, last week that he kind of had an agenda, and it's been getting delayed. He, he was trying to get there um, by Passover, and then he was like, maybe I'll get there by Pentecost. And, and so he's got a destination in mind, but he's going back through the churches along the way. And one of the opportunities that he has is to visit the church in Ephesus. But he decides beforehand, I'm not going to actually go into Asia. I don't want to go. That's where Ephesus is, by the way. Not the Asia, the continent. Asia, the, the province of Rome at this moment. And so he decides he's not going to go there because he knows if he does, he'll be um, delayed even further. Because this is a people that he's knit together with. And so even in this, you see that Paul's pastoral heart is that not only do these people, um, he wants them to be strengthened, but he doesn't want them like totally reliant on him for all things spiritual life. So what, he did, what he's done is he travels past Ephesus by way of boat, and then he, he's in Miletus, and he calls a group of, of leadership around him. And so um, I, I want to read um, verses 25 through 28 about Paul's, um, if you want to think about it this way, his like summation statement as part of this address. And my hope is that we'll, we'll break this address to the Ephesian leaders, the Ephesian elders, into to three weeks. And so this week is primarily dealing with what, is it, what does it mean that God has a, an intended structure for his church? And then next week we'll talk about scripture itself and then the knitting together of his people. So in uh, verses uh, 25 and on, Let's read this. It says, um, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, 
There's a couple of words in here that I'm going to ask you to, to note. The first thing is that he calls them um, to, to watch over something. And in that, we also see that they're called the elders of the church. And so I want to uh, unpack a couple of these terms and let you know that they're interchangeable when it comes to the, the church leadership. So you'll hear the word elder, you hear the word pastor, and if you're reading like older translations, you might hear the word bishop or overseer. And these all sort of refer to the same um, purpose in the church, which is leadership. Leadership, okay? So it comes down to that. So we have um, pay careful... Uh, let me, let me find it again for you. Pay careful attention to you and to all the flock. And then you see this reference to the flock being a familiar one. Jesus said that he's the good shepherd and those that follow him are his sheep that belong to him. And so the idea of a shepherd is the, the term that's most often translated as pastor, okay? So now I want you to lump all four of those together and realize that elder, overseer, pastor, those are all the same term. They all have to do with God's intended leadership for the flock, okay? Now, back in verse 17, it tells us who this group of leaders are. It says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the, the elders, okay? So I'm not just making it up. I'm, I'm, help, I'm hoping that you'll see here that there's a group here, and they're all interchangeable. And so we have um, these, these terms. So elder simply means uh, one who is, like, not necessarily aged, but is mature, Okay, and, and uh, nor normally in life, in, in tribal living and that kind of thing, the older people are the ones who are most mature. But it, it doesn't necessarily track if that's true in the church of God. Somebody could be younger than you age-wise, but be more mature in the faith. So elder has a specific idea that it's somebody who's mature in faith with, with um, following God. And the, the Greek word there is presbyteros, okay? And in that you can kind of hear Presbytery or Presbyterian. That's because they're governed by elders. Okay? The next uh, word that you see often is overseer. And that uh, word is epis episcope. It's a compound word. Epi means to, to be on or over. And scope is to, to look at. Right? So to oversee. It's literally the word there. Overseer. Okay? So and in that you can hear episcopalian. Something like that, right? Okay? So if that doesn't track, that's okay. So uh, we have elder, overseer, and then pastor. And then um, the word for flock there is the plural word for shepherd. So poimen is the Greek word for a shepherd. And then um, uh, poimnon, sorry if I can get that out, is the word for a follower or flock or sheep. So that's you guys, the church. And so I want you to see in this, not that you need to remember all the Greek words, but that God actually does have something called a leader within his flock. Now, we sort of bristle at this. Why? Well, I, I think there's uh, several reasons. One is because we, we live in America, and we come from a, a style of government that we understand as a representative democracy, okay? And in a democracy, we think, hey, that's equity. That's equitability. Like, I have some say in that. Everybody's kind of on the same plane. But if you think about that, even within a, a representative democracy, there is a hierarchy, if you will. Okay? Now, so we, we, we bristle with that because that's not really what we're familiar with, but also because maybe we've had bad experiences with leadership or people have been more authoritarian than God intends for the leadership of his church. And so I want you to know that th this is a necessity. And because it's in God's word, hear me clearly, okay? So this is the main point of the intro. It's in God's word, so just like everything else, we don't get to ignore it or reshape it or refashion it to the way that we feel most comfortable with or to our political familiarities or to whatever. Does that make sense? So to be disobedient in this would be to be disobedient as to any other part, portion or part of Scripture that we know clearly. So when we think about what it is to, to be a, an overseer and an elder, because God has said, this is my intended purpose for uh, the, the church and how it's led, he's given us requirements so that we're not just left up to ourselves to, to try and say, well, here's what we think would be best. So we, when that happened with the nation of Israel, they said, we want a king. And they wanted to select their own king, and they selected Saul because he looked the best from the outside. He stood taller than everybody else. He was good looking, right? And so they chose Saul based on outward appearances. But if you look at all of the qualifications for an elder or an overseer or a pastor, they all talk about internal character. And more than character, that comes from not a skill that's developed or a special kind of gifting, but it is the application and the submission to God's word to the life of the one who's supposed to be helping other people to do the same. Can I, I'll repeat that again. 
the main qualification is that the elder, overseer, pastor is submitted to and applying God's word to their own life because that's what they're called to help the flock do, to submit to and apply God's word to their lives. Tracking with that? Okay. And so 1 Timothy 3 is kind of the the main go-to passage that specifically references elders and the requirements for elders. There's others in in Titus and so on. But let me read to you uh, in 1 Timothy 3. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office, you see that it's an office, the office of overseer, he desires a a noble task. Not Not a position, but a duty, okay? He desires something noble. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. I want you to note that for just a second. It's not required that you have a household, but you do have some form of living that is private to you. And to manage that well um, and do it with dignity and keeping his, his children submissive or obedient to, the, um, to manage that well is now analogous to or, or made a representation of what it is to help manage the household of God. So in verse 5, it says this, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there it is. The, the household of God is God's church, and he, and he, and he wants the leadership to, to function that way as a family and to manage that well. And so it's an office, it's a noble task, and the qualifications have to do with, with being obedient to all that God's word calls us to do. And you don't get there by, like, um, you don't acquire that position by fulfilling that perfectly, but by pursuing it, by being in constant pursuit of it, and that would be the, the testimony of your life. So there's this expected, like, legitimate leadership role, but it's, it's under the category of care for God's people, caring for God's people. Okay, so let me pray for um, the rest of our time in the Word. And what I want to do now is track back with what Paul has said and what he's going to tell the leaders of the church in Ephesus, this is what I want you to do because this is what I've done. So he's going to look to all of the things that he's done when he was in among them in Ephesus, and it's going to be representative of what he wants them to perpetuate, to put into place, and to continue on for the church, not just in Ephesus, but for all the churches everywhere. So let's pray. And... Uh, We'll continue. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I pray that as we're um, walking through your word this morning, that you would um, help me to um, speak clearly what you would want to say. Nothing that I have, no agenda, and keep me from air. Open our hearts to hear what you would speak. Our ears to listen to your voice and your word this morning, to see and behold you and um, the truths that you would have. Father, this is a precious time, so I pray that you would um, make it um, most useful by conforming us to what your word speaks this morning so that you would be glorified in shaping us to be more like your son. So do that. We ask in Jesus' name. We pray these things. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so I'm going to Rewind back to verse 18, because this is where Paul begins talking about his time that he spent with the church in Ephesus. And so in each of these elements, in each verse, I'm going to kind of like highlight one aspect of it that points to the character and the kind of things that we just read about in, um, in 1 Timothy 3. So he says this, And when they, that they there is the leaders of the Ephesian church, the elders, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he he says this, look, I didn't come in as like this televangelist preacher and assert some authority. I lived literally among you, the people. This is an important aspect for the life of a pastor. Paul, um, You can see his pastoral heart because he takes the long way around to get to where he's trying to go. He wants to visit the churches. He says, even from the first day, even though you didn't know me, I embraced the culture, I was in among the people. This is important both ways. One, because he's saying, look, I'm not better than you. I want you to to know me. I want to know you. But also, he, he, um, he wants them to observe not just what he says, but to observe his own life in the conduct. And he can't do that unless they're there to see it or unless he's there for them to, to see it and perceive it. And so he wants them to kind of look on, and that's why he says, like, 
hey, uh, when, he, when he's telling the Corinthians to obey in his absence, he, he says, like, follow me as I follow Christ, because you saw that. And so he, he's doing the same thing here, and that I was uh, in among you the whole time, from the beginning to the end, and that's supposed to encourage them. There are um, lots of uh, a bigwig, like celebrity pastors that have this idea that they, they can't be bothered to be in among the sheep, right? And, and that's a problem. Um, Kenneth Copeland, I which I hesitate to even bring it up, right? But recently he went through this whole thing where he needed money for a private jet. Why? Because he can't be bothered to fly in coach class or even first class with all of you regular people. He's a pastor. He's got stuff to do, right? And so there's the CEO mentality that feeds into this. And Paul says, like, no, I was in and I was among you and I was knitted together with you in life and doing things. And that CEO mentality is problematic and it's, it's, um, it's prominent throughout church culture today. And some people think that by being the quote-unquote leader or the pastor or an elder, that they get to be in like a different class of person. Like I'll be in the managerial class, and that way I avoid the janitorial kinds of duties. And that's not the case here. That to be part of the flock is to, to be part of the flock and to do all of the things that the flock is required to do. And so the pastor's not above the flock. He's a member too, and he's an under-shepherd. So the CEO mentality is, is not... Um, is not uh, affirmed here. And so um, he says, I, I, was, I was accessible to you. I was among you as, um, as we did life together. And then verse 19, he says, and I serve the Lord with all humility, okay? With humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And then later on in verse 27, he, he says, I do not account my life of any value. And the, the literal rendering there would be something like, I don't, I don't need to speak many words about what I've done. Like, there's no value in telling you more about me, right? That, that's a, a humble kind of perspective on himself. Pride tells us that we think we deserve something, and humility knows what we deserve, okay? Pride says, you deserve this, and, and so you kind of get selfish and up, you know, upright about what you b- believe you deserve, but a humble person knows what you actually deserve, and they live in that truth. Okay? And a humble person knows what Christ has called the, a leader to do, and it's sacrificial not to be up above lording the, the leadership above people, to serve with humility. In Matthew 20, um, Jesus is comparing what he wants his disciples to be like, how, how he says leadership comes about, versus what happens in, in the rest of the world. In Matthew 20, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, right? They have this, this mentality where I'm better than you, you need to listen to me, and their superiors exercise authoritatively or an authority over them. So they just say, look, I'm not going to interact with you. You just listen to me because I'm dad and I said so. It's that kind of authoritarian rule. He says, but it shall not be this way among you, among the people that follow me, is what Jesus is saying. It will not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great or whoever wants to lead must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first or to be, to be best as a leader must be your slave. We, we talked about that distinction last week. And when Paul says, I came and I served, he uses the word, not the soft word of service, but the, the harsh word of slavery. I am a slave. Because that's how he sees what he does for the master. Those who aspire to the task of leading in the church, it says in uh, 1 Timothy that it's a noble, a noble task, not a profitable one, not a prominent one, not a powerful one. A noble one is, is one that is not going to afford you much, um, you know, celebration. Do not lord leadership over the people because that's what Gentiles do. They're proud in the idea of leadership. Servant leadership is going to be a term like you're um, familiar with. We, we throw it around, around a lot. And we seem to emphasize servant in all caps. And then leadership is in like parentheses and italics and lowercase is like a, a footnote. And it's both. It's, it's servant leadership. So rather than just minimizing that and to say, well, servanthood looks like this certain way, I want to help balance this view. See, servanthood does not mean that you're soft or malleable or is a pushover or agreeable. It kind of even goes to the point of being like an effeminate kind of kick gloves. You can't actually help anybody lead them. You can't lead anyone if you're any of those things. So servant leadership, well, well I, saw, I saw some uh, 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 furrowed brow, so let me qualify this. Just stick with me for a second. Servant leadership does not mean pushover, okay? Now, it's not really um, 
leadership if you're not able to stand up for the group when it's necessary. So let's talk about this for just a second. Even though we're ruled as a democracy, kind of we have a representative government, um, not every aspect of our lives or every um, part of America is ruled with um, sort of that equitable democracy, is it? Think about the idea of the military, right? In the military, if we were just, everybody's going to decide whatever the collective wants, that's what's best, right? So we all just say, hey, we're going to vote on this, whatever we think at the moment seems to be best. We're ruled by the mob in the moment, okay? That would be the, the idea here. And, and so um, going into battle, do you want to be ruled by the mob? Well, not really, because everybody's going to first look to self-preservation. So you say, hey, if we march into battle, some of us are going to die, but we need to defend our land. Well, if I'm looking out for me first, then I'm going to vote that we don't do that, right? And the majority of people are also going to vote the same way. And so we don't protect our land and we don't march into battle, right? You need somebody that's going to say, hey, we, we have to lead, and, and I can't let you just vote for what's best necessary that you think for you in this moment. We have to do what's right, not what you're comfortable with. And so that's why I'm saying we think of servant leadership as, as the one who, who doesn't do anything and, and who is not rigid in anything, and that's not true. It is both servant leadership. When Paul says what happened to him in Ephesus, to this, to this same church, he's saying, he said, um, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. And he's talking about the fact when, when, when the crowd rises up, he walks into a, a coliseum full of fifteen to 20,000 people who all want to see him dead. Do you want a courageous person or a nice person? You want a courageous person. You want a leader in that moment. Okay, so it's both and. It's not emphasis of one or the other, and we tend to overemphasize to the stereotype of just wanting somebody who will go with the flow to get us along without any kinds of, um, you know, pushback. So um, a shepherd is not somebody who merely wants to, to be in the lead as long as there's hazard pay. It's somebody who's willing to step in and, and, and defend the sheep and the flock when it's necessary, but do it with kindness and gentleness with the sheep to help them get to safety, okay? So it has to be, it has to be both, and it's a hard balance sometimes. Okay, I got to keep moving. So there's a humility that's necessary to know what we're called to, but not to value ourselves so much to think that we need to self-preserve first. Now, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you from public, from uh, teaching you in public and from house to house. So there's an integrity aspect, a very necessary integrity aspect. Um, I, I pretty much grew up in church, and um, my dad most often quoted to me this idea of integrity, mostly because I wasn't being a person of integrity. But he always says integrity is what you do when nobody's watching, right? Integrity is what you do when, when there's no accountability. What are you going to do? So I like that idea. And the consistency that's needed between what's public and what's private. And here's, there, there's a couple of different um, ideas, a couple of them, like, ways I want to look at this. The first is this. If you preach something publicly, but then you soften it privately, that's a problem. If you declare something that everybody else needs to do in public, but then you yourself don't abide by that same mechanism, that's a problem, right? So it's a, Paul says, I did both. Like, whatever I declared to you in public was the same thing that I would have said to you in your house. And, and um, pastors uh, struggle with this. Why? Because of the fear of man. Because sometimes what we say in private to somebody, we're not willing to say in public because it's going to get us some flack. And we won't preach it to the church because we know that that's going to cause some consternation for people. And the, the reality here is that you have to be consistent both and. You have to be able to say in, in both scenarios what is true, not what's comfortable. I, I know it sort of sounds like what I just said, but it, it's, it's a necessity. The fear of man inside the church, we want... We, we, we can't be so driven by the favor of not the church itself, not just the church itself, but also the idea of what my, what my people say if, they, if I said this in public, what is the outside world going to possibly say? Now, part of the requirements is that it says they must be well thought of by outsiders. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're driven by the opinion of the world. What it does mean is that the character that you display should be one where they go, you know, that guy preaches that inside and outside, and I don't like what he has to say, but, it, but he's not living a hypocritical kind of life. That would be the good opinion they should have of you, okay? Now, um, if you guys are trying to go over things in your head that you've seen me do, this only applies to other elders, but, um, <laughs> all right, so here's the thing, public and private, and, and here's where the world says, hey, you can say whatever you want 
in this private sphere. Like, say whatever you want in the church, but keep it out of politics, you know, keep it, keep it out of uh, community, keep it out of entertainment, keep it, keep it where we think it belongs. And this says it, it, does, it belongs everywhere. It belongs all throughout your life. And, and so we can become um, strapped to this too much, not just for leaders, but also to the church. Your, your faith is not just a private faith, it is a public faith. Too. And so your life should reflect this kind of consistency. He says, um, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks for repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You might miss real quick the, the nuance here because he, he, he was preaching to the Jews a message that they would have um, bristled at. That the people of God being told that they need to repent towards God. Paul, what do you know about people, right? And so we're, we're told that... Um, the Jews always saw a sign to know whether or not that this thing was miraculous and, and really from God, and that the Greeks sought wisdom. They wanted to know the secret wisdom to, to really how to do, do life and, and what really life was like and about. But he says, I went to both Jews and Greeks, and I preached the same message. And, and here's the reality of this. Courage against culture. It's kind of tracking with the last um, statement, but there's a lot of obstacles that culture presents to us that might make us want to like adjust the message a little bit so that it comports with what culture says is okay, what the PC thing of the day is. And like, I'll just step in it. So let's go with it. So DEI, the victimhood mentality, these are not things that people want to hear about today. These are not the, the kinds of, uh, or those are the things they do want to hear about, but they want the gospel run through that filter. And so to, to be able to stand in the face of culture that demands that we acquiesce to whatever terms are used or the, the kind of um, statuses that we allow people to have or that we're hateful bigots because, right, are, are you tracking with the line of argumentation here? The courage to stand against culture even though they demand it. That's what's required. Paul says, I, I don't care if the Greeks think that it's stupid and foolish or, or the Jews think that this is, you know, blasphemous and wrong. I preach the same message, turn towards God. Because you're not afforded anything else. This is the message that saves. I'll keep moving. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Remember, that means he's like, he's saying, I'm chained to what I've committed to do. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies, me, testifies to me in every city that the imprisonment and afflictions await for me. Submissions, uh, excuse me, submission to God's will or walking by the Spirit. This is literally like everything that I talked about last week. To be driven by God's will is to know that you only have one person to please. And you only have one, one life, and you can live it by walking in the flesh, or you can live it by resignation and submission to God's will, and to follow the Spirit. Uh, I, I don't want to re-preach last week, and so I'm just going to keep moving to that. You can see that everything that Paul did was submission to what the Holy Spirit wanted him to do, regardless of if it didn't look like it was going to be a fun vacation kind of road. He said, I'm going anyway. I submit my will to the will of the Holy Spirit. He says, ah, why? Well, because of this, because I don't account my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. He sees his track, he, what he's been called to from the beginning. I want you to be my mouthpiece, Paul, and you're going to bring the gospel before kings and governors, but you're going to suffer a lot. He, Paul knew that from the very beginning. That was like told to him prophetically. And so he knows this, and he's going to walk this road regardless. And so he knows this because he has an endurance for the ministry that he's been given. He has an endurance for the calling. This is, um, I'm just going to, I'm going to rant for a second, I guess. Um, but it's a, it's a biblical rant, so it's okay. So when you hear the, the idea or the term celebrity pastor, you, you actually know what that is. Like you don't wince at it. You're like, what? That doesn't work. But you know what I mean when I say a celebrity pastor, yes? Okay? Somebody that's prominent, no one, no one seems to blink or have any issue with this idea. And that's because there's an infusion of the corporate CEO mentality into the church itself. And because pastors want their churches to be successful, they, they let the tail wag the dog, right? Because the church wants to be X, Y, and Z. Well, I need to conform to those things, and there I will do those things. But, you know... Um, the, the, the job of a pastor is one of the, um, the most uh, turned over, if you want to, I'm missing words today, but you know what I'm saying? Like, people quit all the time being pastor. Why? 
Well, one, because it's hard, right? It's, it's a difficult thing to do. I'm not, this is not a boo-hoo phase, okay? I'm, I'm getting somewhere. Pastors are not overly appreciated. They're not an overly celebrated group, but this is a good thing. It, it's, it's, it's not meant to be that way. Why? Because it keeps us from living off of the wrong things. If I, if I seek affirmation for how much um, you guys like me, for how much I'm celebrated on, on YouTube, or I'm looking to things that I ought not to look to, I'm going to constantly be discouraged. And I am frequently discouraged, and that's a reminder that I'm looking to the wrong things. Why do pastors quit so much? Because their church isn't growing, because things are hard. Because your, The affirmation of your life will not be in, in my recognition of what you do, and my affirmation does not come from your affirmations of me. So endurance in ministry has to come from, from somewhere else, and it is to understand the calling that we've actually been given. This isn't necessarily an indictment on pastors themselves. I, I want them to turn the mirror around for just a second. Maybe they've been encouraged under some of the false premises. Well, if, if you're a really good speaker, you're really dynamic, you're really entrepreneurial, you're awesome. You have great fashion. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, they say you're going to be a good pastor. They're pointing you to the wrong wells. And so people go, I can do all those things. And they jump into pastoral ministry and immediately become discouraged. And they self-destruct because they're in it for the wrong reasons. So church, you're, you're contributing to this when you celebrate those things, when you affirm those things. And when, when we have this cultural mentality where it says, I'm going to vote with my attendance. Not by, the, not by the one substantive measure that I should actually have. Is this person helping me understand what God wants for me? Are they, are they helping me mature? This is like the one metric that you should actually ask of a pastor. Are they faithful to God's word? But we vote with our feet for all these other reasons, all these other preferences, and we contribute to that tail wagging even harder because the pastor is desperately trying to get the affirmations of attendance and giving, right? So I'm not like that. I'm above it, but I'm just trying to bring a little levity to it. <laughs> There's only two options. Either we, 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 we try to remake the church in our own likeness to affirm us, which happens all the time, but we see the church is self-destruct because the pastor self-destructs, because it's built on the wrong things. So this churchianity, church culture that, that, that focuses into that, it's, um, it's, it's a destructive mechanism, and it's one that um, is, is, is too prominent. I can't uh, spend any more time on that. Verse 25 says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul has an eternal perspective. He's like, I'm, I'm only going to live for so long. I only have so much bandwidth. But he gave every ounce of what he had to build something that was bigger than himself. To build something that was bigger than himself, he had an eternal perspective to invest in the things that actually mattered. Where most pastors and a lot of churches and even ourselves, we only invest in the things that matter right now. We build a very temporal kingdom for things that will only matter for only a short while. Too many churches rise and fall on the kingdom that lasts for a season, but we're accountable to build and invest in what lasts. If, if Jesus is the foundation and then we're told that so, so, so he gave us gifts, the apostles and the prophets, and they built on that. And then we're, we're given the word of God and, and pastors to come help along with that. And then Paul says, like, everyone's work will be tested how they build on that foundation. Will we build with the things that last? This is free this morning. If the devil is more happy to allow you to continue doing what you do in freedom, that's its own referendum. Why did Paul have so much affliction, so many problems? What if... If the devil is just as content to have you live the same life that you live without any affliction or trouble or problem, that's its own kind of referendum. Is it not? I just want you to sit with that. It's its own kind of feedback. Paul says, like, I, I'm invested in this. I'm going to pursue it regardless of, I, I know it being difficult. All of the plots and, and things that were hatched against me, hatched against me, I'm going to proclaim the kingdom, even though I know I'm going to my death. That's what he means by, you will never see my face again. In person, right now, this side of heaven, this is it. So I'm going to invest all that I have for you now. He says, therefore I testify you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent, which means if he's, if he's declaring himself innocent, there must be a scenario where he couldn't be innocent of their blood. 
which would be to withhold from them some amount of information that they need to know the truth of the gospel. When he says the whole counsel of God, you, you need to understand that he, do, yeah, yes, he means the words that he's spoken, but it literally means God's will. All, all the, the scriptures are not yet recorded in full. He's only got the Old Testament, the words that he's spoken to them, the letter that he's written to the Ephesians, right? That's part of our New Testament. But there's no Bible he's handing them. He said, but I, everything that I spoke to you is to get you into the, the counsel, the will of God, to follow him. And I didn't shrink from any part of that, and that, that declares me innocent of your blood. So I gave you all the information, and what you do with that is your own. This prophetic word is not like, I saw into the future to tell you what's true. To, to be prophetic is to, to, to declare the words of God to allow you to know the consequences of what you do with those words. So we'll see some, some cases of prophecy in the New Testament are looking for, they're warning, but that's all what a, what a warning is, to, to actually be able to speak what will happen in truth um, without um, repentance or uh, submitting to God is a prophetic word. And so pastors are still called today to be prophetic in their preaching, to declare to you the, the, the full counsel of what God actually says and not just say, it's okay if you only submit this one part of your life, it'll be fine. It'll be okay if you, if you only decide to X, Y, and Z, right? To, to withhold some truth of God's counsel from you is to make my, myself accountable for your, for, for your decisions. So I have to be able to, um, in earnest, come before God and say, hey, my teaching has to be able to um, stand the scrutiny of an, an extra layer, if you will. That's why Paul says later on, like, not many people should aspire to be teachers because teachers are held to a higher standard. Elders, if your seat's getting warm, this applies to you too. You're held to a higher standard. You must know that whatever it is that you say and how you live, not just the words that you speak, but the full accountability of those who step into this role is across the board. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. This is now speaking to the whole church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. That's my, that's my charge. That's the charge of the pastor and the elders to care for you over your, your soul, your very eternal being. So I'm looking out for you, and I don't want there to be something where you go, Mitch, you didn't tell me that, right? Because I'm accountable for that. And so, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, Submit to your leaders. If they're, if they're doing what they ought to do, then they're trying to give you the best information that you could possibly have to lead you into life and not to death. Why? Because they are those who will give an account. There's accountability. You want an innocent pastor, not one who's pretty innocent, right? You want somebody who's giving you the full counsel. So let them do, the, do this, this governing, this watching out for you, this overseeing. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning. Okay, for that would be of no advantage to you. If it's, if it's so difficult, like, look, there's, everybody's got personalities. And, and watching sheep is difficult regardless. I mean, because I'm one of them, okay? And I know that we all have the attention span of a gnat, and, and we all want to wander off and go find our own green pastures, et cetera, et cetera, right? But if, if you're just like that sheep that's constantly like just making it hard, like, why would you do that? Why would you aggrieve somebody that's just trying to do the best for you, okay? So that's all I'm going to say about that. Let the Holy Spirit say the rest, okay? So be, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, okay? This is now winding up where we started the, 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 the prime couple sentences here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. They're, they're engaged in their obedient. So it bears your attention now. I'm closing down so, so uh, you guys can tune back in. This wasn't necessarily a sermon all about leadership, even though it was. It's going to funnel down to something very important. So it bears your attention that it says that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. It wasn't Paul's appointing them. It wasn't Timothy's um, you know, certificate of uh, circumcision. It's not the school of Tyrannus that that Paul preached in for three years, none of these things qualified this group to be called overseers. There's one thing that actually did, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made them overseers. So what does that actually mean? Well, first just notice that they're called to be among a certain group of people, right? 
The Holy Spirit has made you overseers over this, this local flock. I'm not responsible for any other sheep in any other church. I'm not. And, and I should not lust after the sheep at another church. So it says, first of all, like, hey, don't, don't sheep swap, okay? And don't be worried about other sheep. But also, don't entertain the goats, okay? So don't be looking to just try to grow the church because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers over a specific group of people, a certain flock. So the Holy Spirit has done this by salvation, by calling these individuals in whatever station of life for this specific person, literally by the location they live in. God has appointed the times and seasons for us for specific reasons because you need to be these people among this flock at this moment by their life circumstances, by the specific spiritual gifts that they've been given, by their uniting together to these people to care for them specifically among any other people in all of the face of the earth. So school does not an elder or a pastor make. And um, that's sort of like a big thing. Like if, if somebody said, um, hey, I want to be a pastor, I think most, the first counsel they'd probably get is, well, you probably need to go to the seminary. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it's not the thing. A degree does not make you a pastor. A Holy Spirit makes you a pastor. A Holy Spirit makes you an overseer. So whether it's money, success, desire, influence, none of these things, not even kindness, can qualify us to be an overseer. So the Holy Spirit has placed these individuals, not in, a, not in the mystical way that you might think, though in some of those assets it's, it's invisible, but there's a visible aspect to it. We're, we're given what the visible aspect of the Holy Spirit doing this for these people is. First Timothy 3, read through that list. Are these people of the kind of character that should oversee the church? Are these the people that are applying God's word to their life regardless of the, of the cost? Are they leading in that way? When they're leading in obedience, then they're ready to lead. When they're leading in obedience, they're ready to lead. Obey first. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He said, first, pay attention to you. Make sure that your leadership is not hypocritical. Make sure that you can point to being among the people in the conduct of your own life to say, that, like, hey, I'm just like you. I'm trying to do the same things you are. I'm applying all these things to myself so that you can say that in earnest. Then you can pay attention to the flock that you're among. You cannot do for anyone else what you have not first done to yourself. You cannot apply to other people what you have not first applied to yourself. So skills, degrees, learning, yeah, yeah, those are assets. But nothing, nothing supersedes the obedience of the Holy Spirit. So this word to pay careful attention literally means to like bring close and to examine. To, to bring close to examine. It's, it's almost the same idea of to oversee, to, to look over the top of and to, to, to examine people's lives. But what he's telling them to do is like to be close enough that you can know into people's lives how to help them and, and where they're struggling and where do you can correct them at. So this is what they're, they're called to do. Among the flock, oversee them, see what they're doing, and, and do something to uh, engage with that. We've been watch, watching um, this series in uh, Netflix called um, Dr. Death. And there's a couple seasons of it. It's like super tragic. Um, but here's the reality. So doctors, we all inherently trust. Why? Because they've gone to school. And, you know, we think they know more than we do about this particular problem. We have a problem. We want it fixed. And you go to the doctor. And so these, these doctors, so these particular ones in this, this show, are... are um, just kind of freelancing. They're doing whatever they want. They have people's lives in their hands, and so they're like doing surgeries, and they're killing people. They're making them worse off than when they started, which is the violation of the, the very first, number one, primary tenant of health care, the Hippocratic Oath. Do you know it? First do no harm. No harm, okay? If that is the, the primary tenant, because we, we're in, we inherently trust doctors with our lives, with our health, okay? Now, now put that in the realm of an elder or a pastor. If you're going to entrust your eternal soul to someone, the first and primary tenet of do no harm is to steward. Be a steward. Because stewardship says, it's not mine. You're not mine. The flock does not belong to me. You are Christ's. You belong to God. I'm stewarding something in a, in a position, and I'm supposed to do it with the kind of care that I'm holding the most precious asset that, could, that has and will ever exist. 
God's own people and your eternal soul at that. So the, the, the primary tenet of, of, of leadership is to, yeah, do no harm because you steward well. You're aware of your actual um, purpose, your actual existence, to care. To care is all-encompassing. It doesn't lean to one aspect more than the other. To feed, to lead, to help, to pet, to have fun with, right? To remove thorns, to, to rescue you because you went on a cliff. Like, there's all these aspects of care, but overall, it's to, to know that I don't own you, but to preserve you as best as I can for the one that does. There's an identifiable group called the flock that belongs to Jesus, that belongs to God. Why? Because he obtained you with his own blood. That's what makes you the most valuable asset, the most valuable thing on the face of the earth, because you've been redeemed with the most valuable thing that has ever been, the blood of God. That's what covers you. That's why you have value. So now I, I get to sum this whole thing up and say, instead of this being a, a, a message preached to Mitch about what Mitch should do, I get to say this. Like, do you feel precious to God? Like, you should know that my, whatever I do for you and whatever I try to do to serve you and care for you is driven by this. Your preciousness to God. If God values me in this way, in what way? In the way that he would give his son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to redeem you. He didn't do it because you are so special, but because he's done it, you are so special. You, have, you become his treasured, prized possession. Any illustration I would give right now won't do it justice, but I'll try one. If for some reason your parent on their deathbed had given you some, some worthless thing, right? Some, some trinket, some, some, some aspect, some treasure, and, and they gave you just the, the life advice that you, you'd always needed and whatever, and, and they handed that to you, and I just used something ridiculous like a, a baseball, an old beat-up baseball, Okay? The inherent value of the ball, of the, the twine and the core and the leather cover is dollars, right? If that much. And the older it is, the less it's worth, okay? But what, what kind of care would you give to this ball? Like, how much would you value it? You would value it with everything because it means something more than the specific outside value of it, right? It's been imbued with some kind of extra value. So I come over to your house and I'm like, hey, what's like the most valuable thing that you have? And instead of, you know, pulling out your Bugatti that you obviously all have, right? A Bugatti is a really nice car, by the way, right? <laughs> you bring out this treasure from the back room and you're like, here it is. This is the most valuable thing I have. This is what God has called his people, his, his treasured possession. This is Old Testament and New Testament. Peter repeats the same thing that's given to us in Deuteronomy 7. Before um, the Israelites go to possess the promised land in Deuteronomy. Moses just reminded him of the whole thing. Hey guys, remember we were slaves? Remember God rescued us? Remember, remember, remember. Okay? He's given them all the details before they get in there. In Deuteronomy 7, he says this. Instead of, you know, just um, modifying your lives and, and kind of going in and just being part of the people that are already in there because they don't love God, they don't worship God. Instead of that, this is what you should do. You should go in there you should tear down their altars. You should smash their sacred pillars. You should cut down their Asherah poles and burn down their idols in the fire. Now just get, a, I, I backed up a verse just because I didn't want to get all the soft, squishy stuff. Think about the first thing he says. He says, you go in there and you destroy everything that is not submitted to God. Why? Because we belong to God. So I want you to go in there with courage and to march in there and we're going to wreck it all. All these idol worshiping things, we're, it's just going to get torn down. Why? Verse 6, for you are a people that are holy to God. That means you're a people that are set apart. You're distinct from them. You're different from them. Why? Because the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people as his prized possession. The Hebrew word there is segula. And so Peter repeats this word. Later on, he says, you, you guys, you're a kingdom of priests. You are a treasured possession. 
This is the word. This is the thing. That you're the thing, the secret thing that God brings out when he says, what do you love most? What do you most value? What, what do you care about? What do you want to make sure never gets wrecked? This, you, my people. <laughs> and so there's your impetus. You say, why should I obey? Because Christ paid for you with his precious blood. Why should I live in holiness? Why should I separate myself from the world? Why should I live consistently? Why should I live a servant kind of life? Why should I do any of these things? Because you've been bought with the value that you can't repay. Do you understand this? He says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous or because you were better than other people, or because, but rather because you were the fewest of all the people, because you needed it most, is actually what he's saying. I, I just because I love you because I love you. This is what you need to see, church, that your value is not wrapped up in any of these other things, but because Christ is paid with his own blood to give us infinite value. The picture drawn in Revelation, this is the end, I promise. Revelation 5 is, is as everyone's gathered around the throne, literally the elders of the church, the elders that are in heaven, all the creatures, everyone, they're waiting. There's a, there's a scroll that no one has the authority to open. But it says, and he, that would be the lamb. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's the ancient of days. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb each one holding a, car, a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. So, so they're going to sing a song, and they're going to worship the Lamb. What are they going to say? Worthy are you to take the scroll. Worthy are you to open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You reign in humility. You reign because Christ loved you loves you. He's redeemed you. Again, the refrain comes, then I looked and I heard before the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the voice of all the angels, more, more, more. They say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb, be blessing and honor glory and might forever 